Hi, this is Rob from Racktime. You're about to listen to an exciting virtual panel that's part of What's on Joe Mind's Virtual JoeCon 2020. Before you start the fun, this event is a fundraiser for World Central Kitchen, an organization that provides meals to first responders and victims of tragedies like this one. Please go to donate.wck.org slash what's on Joe Mind to donate if you can. All donations go to the World Central Kitchen. Now that you've done that, treat yourself to the high-quality entertainment ahead, or whatever it is we do here. Enjoy! Backstage at the What's on Joe Mind virtual con panel room. One of the calls I was on, Wes was in the house, obviously, and he was listening, and he's like, I gotta go outside. I don't know how you have a job. He's gonna be an amazing archer by the end of the summer. (laughs) Practicing Mongolian style. I was like, where are we getting a horse? (laughs) (laughs) Why are we practicing? He's just galloping, and then one of his friends is behind him with the coconut shell. (laughs) It can grip it by the husk. (laughs) I like that I broke her right before we start recording. Good evening and welcome to What's on Joe Mind. I'm your head honcho and lead voice. Uh, It only took me a couple weeks to take over, so I'm very proud of that. I'm Mark Weber, and welcoming you to our virtual con for What's on Joe Mind. I am joined, of course, by the godfather, Mike Irizarry, and the head of the Department of Defense, Joe Colton. We got promoted. Right? I got promoted. Not bad, right? Hey, we're all important. Not bad at all. We're all important here, and it's great to have everybody uh, you know, back on the show and to have you guys listening in. We also want to welcome in our very special guest, the guy who makes Yojo.com run, friend of the program and friend of all three hosts, it's Terry Desar. Hi, everybody. How's it going? We're good, It's Terry. good to connect. Yay. Yeah, it is good to connect. And thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate your time this evening. I'm excited to talk about all the wonderful, exciting things that we're going to be doing on Yojo.com over the next coming year. I mean, it seems like it was only maybe a week ago when some Yahoo was badmouthing Yojo.com online, and I had to course correct him. That was very kind of you. I really do appreciate that. There are some people I think, sometimes I wonder if it's maybe a little bit jealousy. Sometimes I wonder maybe it's just not being aware of the website. There are people who don't really understand what it is that we do or why we do it. That would be kind of fun to kind of fun to go into, I think. Like why are why does Yojo exist? You know, at least as far as I'm concerned. I've always been very clear online and, and when I was working at Hasbro too that Yojo.com has been the most helpful and essential online resource for the G.I. Joe brand for more than 20 years it is a critical resource and show me a fan or a collector who says they don't use it and i'll show you a liar it's really important to give the website it just do and i'm you know i'm I'm certainly not going to let some yahoo try to get internet snark points by taking a shot at something that has been critically important and uh so amazingly helpful to the overall hobby what's Interesting is that I actually was a user of Yojo long before I ever was officially participating with it. I was in high school. I was a junior in high school, October 1997, when Yojo went online. Before that, it was three 
independent websites operated by three different people. We had Connor Malone, we had Eugene Sun, and we had Corey Stinson. And they all had their own respective websites. And Connor Malone had the foresight to purchase the domain name back when you could purchase a popular easy domain name like yojo.com for like nothing. You know, it was really easy to just buy the domain and sit on it. Then they took their respective websites, you know, an action figure archive, a file card archive, and then I don't remember what Connor's website was. It was other miscellaneous items, various collectibles from the brand's history. And they put it all together into this one of a kind. Um, it wasn't a database at that point, even though had they had the technical knowledge, I think they probably could have built a relational database, but they actually built every single web page for every figure and every vehicle by hand, which is the most, to me, the most amazing aspect of Gojo was using this type of programming, SHTML, that allowed them to use text files so that whenever they made a new web page, they could just go edit a single text file and add a line entry to say, okay, you know, there's now a version for Cobra Commander we added to the website. And they would just type in the URL of that web page and then save it as into this text file and it would automatically populate on the website. For the 1990s, it was really cool, really advanced technology. It's like magic. It, it was. SHTML was like magic. I took over in 2005. The, the site kind of had a revolving door of administrators and people that were involved. And the early 2000s, G.I. Joe became very, very popular again. Some excellent sales years, I'm sure. Mark, that you have better sales data than what we can kind of guesstimate at. But back in like 2002, 2003, when the original creators of the website were looking to, to bail out, it, the, the beast was becoming too big to manage. They had looked at different volunteers to take over, you know, managing different aspects of the website. It's a big responsibility at that time. If you work a nine to five job, which I was a college kid at that point, it was something that would just be too much to manage. There were too many cooks in the kitchen. And that was actually was one of the first things I did, which was I took a look at how many volunteers we had, how many people were in charge of something. You know, people want to be in charge of something. They, they like that little bit of ego touching. And uh, I ended up firing the entire web staff, every single employee or volunteer, not employee. There were no employees at that point. In 2004, the website was sold by the originator, Connor Malone, who had purchased the site and had the domain and all that. And he had sold it to a nice company at the time that specialized in those kinds of websites, a media and toy collecting conglomeration. And they had different web administrators. And then I reached out and I spoke to one of them who was a, a personal friend of mine, Jeff Bond. And he said, you know, I, I can't do this. It's more than I can handle. And I said, well, you know, it's probably more than I can handle, but I'll take a crack at it. Let's see what we can do. And that was 
like May of 2005. And so that's what, 15 years? So that's been a long time that I have been the overall administrator of Yojo. I think 15 years anywhere is a hell of a run. So, you know, kudos for the run. I think one of the things that if people don't know you personally, I, I think it'd be interesting to know and then to hear about your own G.I. Joe origin. What made you interested in Joe as a fan long before you were ever involved with the website? There's a funny family story behind that, which is kind of interesting. You know, some people have childhood memories of toys. I have a, a family story. My father was in the United States Army. He was in the infantry and he was an instructor in heavy weapons infantry and he was at the px at fort benning on his two weeks of active duty as he was a reservist on monday through friday he worked in the defense industry and aerospace and one weekend a month and two weeks a year he worked for you know the u.s army and uh, he brought home a carded duke figure because the file card read almost identical to his actual military history, like since 1964, you know, what he had been through, what schools he had gone to, what his MOS was. Looking at, you know, my father, whose name was Joe and G.I. Joe, bringing home a G.I. Joe figure whose file card read almost exactly like his own profile, his DD-214, that was pretty impressive. You know, to a small kid like I was, you know, that didn't mean a whole lot at the time. As an adult, you know, you look back on it and you go, that was pretty impressive. And G.I. Joe really was kind of the only toy I was interested in. It was the only thing that really held my interest. Kudos to Kirk Bozigian and all the amazing people that worked at Hasbro at that time, that golden era, because they were themselves military enthusiasts and you know prior service members and they created a product in the 80s the lightning in a bottle it was one of a kind it was truly unique and special for that time period i never really kind of quit it was you know 1994 i was you know 13 going 14 years old they canceled the line and I went from being a kid buying toys to, well, I'm going to go back and buy the old ones I didn't have when I was younger. And now I'm a collector. That's how that got started. So did Duke remain a favorite over the years because of the, the similarity, military similarities to your dad? Yeah, uh, even though the hair color is different. But yeah, um, what's interesting, though, is the one that I felt the most connected with was the 1993 figure. That was about a year and a half after he had retired. My father had retired from the Army. They froze his retirement due to Desert Storm and issued him desert fatigues and said, guess what? You're going to be training, you know, in six months. Fortunately, it didn't go that way at that time. And the 93 Battle Corps figure, I think, is one of the most inspired designs for Duke that they had done at that time. One of the most interesting things that we got to do at Yojo.com and uh, before we go any further, I need to say it's, I'm the administrator, but I have a partner, I Philip Donnelly. Without Philip, there is no Yojo. He takes all the photos. He works with me with photo editing. He does interviews. He's just really savvy and works like a machine. 
And that was actually the first employee, the first person I brought to work with me on Yojo back in 2005, 2007 technically, but Philip had, had been involved with Yojo for many years prior to that. And um, anyway, the 1993 Battle Corps figure, that Desert Storm look, you know, it was a very classic United States Army, the rolled sleeves, the K-pot helmet in the goggles, the the whole setup, it was just very accurate to that 1990 through like 1995 time, actually almost all the way into the late 90s, early 2000s, that type of uniform was standard. And so that just gave a very military and very relevant feel to the brand at the time. I was thinking about the you know the long run for yojo.com and lots of different bits. I mean, it's always evolving. It's always improving. I want to know what are some of the things that have really worked and been really popular additions to the site, and maybe what are a couple things that didn't work as well as you expected? That is a really wonderful question because one of the things that I am most proud of is we created a for free collection management system that allows anyone to sign up for the website so the forms account and to track their collection and go through the website through each page year by year and we're not talking just 80s figures though that's you know where our focus is we also want to work very hard on getting right the 2000s 12 inch figures which is a very nebulous and almost like lost toy line. There were so many items produced between you know 1996 and 2004 that it itself could be a massive database. And I mean truly massive, as massive as the you know 1982 through 2016 4-inch figure database that's out there right now. You know, we want to focus on things like the 1964 through 1970s, you know, military style figures. Then the 70s brought in the, you know, Adventure Team, and then Adventure Team brought in Super Joe. And then how long was it? Three years? Two years? Three years? The line was dead until the 1980 hockey team beat the Soviet Union. And then that kind of was the the kickoff that brought back the real American hero, which if you have not seen the toys that made us and their amazing episode on the history of G.I. Joe, you have to watch it on Netflix and just pause this right now and go spend 30 minutes and watch what made G.I. Joe happen. It was incredible. It was it was magical. Just make sure you come and, back. Please come back. Hey, and then, and then come right back because we got lots more to talk about. But creating a uh, collection management system, I thought was fantastic because as you get older and your memory gets foggier, that's one of the biggest things is keeping track of your collection as it grows and being able to enter your own notes and how much you paid for it and giving you control over your collection in a way that had never been done before was a really incredible improvement. And the great thing that went along with that is it happened at the same time as a planned change on the architecture of Yojo. 
that we talked about before where you're using, you know, that server side, you know, HTML kind of thing where, you know, we're handwriting code and we want to create a new figure. We go pull a template out and it's all in HTML. Well, that's been switched. We have a graphical user interface on the back end and we just simply have a collection of photos that we've taken and that we've edited in Photoshop and we upload those photos through the user interface and we put in our notes and we can make corrections you know, and changes easily. We can update photos you know, easily as variants were found. We can add those into the website. Um, it totally changed the architecture and that took us uh, it took almost a year of planning and then six months every single day after coming home from work of just dragging and dropping files from the old website to the new website and then updating that entire copy, the flavor text for the, for the whole figure, for that one item, and then moving on to the next. And then we would break it up, you know. Terry, you take, you know, these five years. Phil, you take these five years. And then we'll look at the next, you know, five years. And we continued to do this until we got to 1993 and 2004 and 2005. Those are the biggest years in the Lions history at that point with so many action figures and so many variants that trying to keep track of that was extremely difficult. But when we were done, we had this amazing checkbox system. It looks simple. It looks stupid. People look at it and go, oh, well, I could do that. You know, now that's no big deal. Well, you tried doing it for, I want to say it was 20,000 web pages and 100,000 images Blech. prior to that point. All of them created by hand. Goodness. That's a massive website. Like, I had no idea that we had done that for that long and that we had allowed it to get that large before it was switching to a, a better technology. And it took the right programmer and it took the right developer and the right people to come along at the right time and uh, give us the opportunity to do that. The company that we were owned by at the time did not want to make a lot of financial investments in Yojo without like an immediate cash payoff. And so when you're limited in you know how much money you have and what you can do, it's it's hard to pay you know, you have to find volunteer developers. Well, how many volunteer devs are there in your, in the GI Joe community? You know, a few people raise their hand and then they go and they take a look at what you're doing and they're like, nope, I'm out. No way, I can't, I'm not touching that. That's just way too big, That's way too much to work with. And uh, after all of 2011, yeah, all of 2010 and 2011, we were putting this together, and then we debuted it at the JoeCon in 2012. And that's where we were showing uh, two versions. It was the you know the collection management system. And then there was a buy-sell trade system that was what we called Yojo Pro, and that was a, a four-pay system. I think it was like $3 a year or you know a dollar a month, whichever you preferred to pay. It was just really inexpensive. And we just wanted to get people mostly just to pay back what we spent on developer work. 
but it gave you the ability to not only track your collection, but to keep an eye on what other people had added to their collections that maybe they had duplicates of or that they wanted to sell or they wanted to get rid of. And then it linked the two parties together. It's not like eBay where there was all these different like rules and enforcement and everything. It was a, you know, a, a handshake agreement between two parties, but that was something that we created that allowed you to connect with another member in the community. Uh, and it could very well be one of your friends. You had really no idea who it would be who had, you know, that spare, you know, snow serpent figure that you were looking for that there was available for you in the buy sell trade section. And that's something that still is running today, but those are things that are on my priority list. That I'm going to make some drastic changes to. Can you give us a, a little insight or a little sneak preview as to you know what might be coming or how those are adapting and evolving? Well, to kind of go back on that a little bit, we were purchased in 2018 by a Canadian company called Vertical Scope. Vertical Scope invests heavily in purchasing online communities and forums. If you're really into 2000 eras Dodge. Uh, and Chrysler vehicles, and there's a web forum about it, they'll buy that forum, and then they'll sell advertising space, that kind of thing. And Yojo was selected by them as a website that they, they wanted to branch into. They wanted to get into not just the collector community and the forum, but the other half of that, like the, the database, like you know, the, the items that are included in there. And so we were one of their first purchases. And after some negotiating and figuring out what's going to be a good fit, we worked out a good deal that kept me on board and gave me editorial control over Yojo. It actually gives me more control now over the content and over the way that Yojo is managed than it did in the past, which is a, a really good thing because from now that allows the community to tell us with more authority what is it you want to see what is it that you need and if you build it they will come well in this case they're already there just tell us what to build you know to, to keep you there and we'll do it and so when i sat back and i took a look at things you know i don't want there to be any additional paywalls on the website for anything so the paywall buy sell trade you know pre yojo pro section i think is something that we're going to move away from being a pay-to-play area and make the site totally open and free of any charge our advertisements cover our costs enough at that point that it keeps our parent company happy and after speaking with the parent company you know there's some other things that they have available some resources that you know we didn't know were available to us things that we also didn't have like for example, there's a wrapper. Uh, I like to think of it as like a candy wrapper that we can put around the website that changes the code to make it functional for mobile devices without having to create an app, without having to rebuild the site. We simply just go in, put in this code in a couple of spots, this wrapper, and now it will look better on your cell phone. It'll look better on your tablet. It will look just the same on your desktop, you know, Mac or PC. It's, you know, platform independent. And, you know, that's one of the changes that we're looking at doing. 
So, you know, we're looking at getting rid of a paywall. We're looking at changing it to being platform independent. And then lastly, I want to expand, and this is going to take some time. You know, these are blue sky projects. They're things that will happen. It's just they take time and they take input and they take planning. There's two areas of the website. The first one is I'd like there to be a collection management app where you'll be able to take your cell phone with your camera, take photos of every item in your collection and upload that photo, which we already have that put in place, but upload that photo and replace the stock photo that we keep in there for the collection management. So your version one Dusty with the broken thumb is having a stock photo there. It can be your own actual item. And then that will allow you to have more control over your, your collection. And you know, look at the items that you have that you want, that you want to replace or that you want to sell. And then doing that, that's going to give you know our membership, I think, a lot more incentive to manage their collection through Yojo instead of just, you know, there's some things that drive me crazy and watching people make photocopies of Yojo and then keep it in a three ring binder drives me up <laughs> the wall. Like you would think it would be an uncommon thing. And it's not. There are so many collectors that will steal pictures or snips or content from Yojo and put it in their own personal. I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense to me. But they'll put it in their own unique format that works for them for their own checklist. And it's like we spent enough money to buy a fairly nice luxury sedan for you to have a checklist of what you want or what you have on the website. And instead you go and you print it out and put it in a three ring binder. Like I, I will never, I will never understand that. Mike is so ashamed of his three ring binder right now. <laughs> I, I use the two ring want, binder, the two ring binder. Uh, I got I went so old school that it's before they had the third ring. Joe's got a trapper keeper full of all, all of her pages, so you know, she can look cool. Well I mean Dragon. she I have put, them referenced though. It's got save Ferris etched in on the side of it or something. <laughs> I mean she she put so many Lisa Frank stickers on that thing that there's no way you can get rid of that. Right. All over. But that is one thing that, you know, I I've find is really unique about Jojo is that there are people who will print out these pages and that that's their checklist. When I wanted to com complete my comic book collection, I went through and put check marks next to the issues I had and the issues I didn't have or issues I needed, you know, like variant covers or, you know, the second printings of so that when I went to a comic show, I pulled out my phone, I was on Wi-Fi. And I could just scroll through what I needed really quick because I could just pull up a list of my wants that was right there. And so that was, you know, a, a really good use of the technology. In its own way, I suppose it's a, it's a little flattering. Yeah, they love the content. Uh, yeah, they love the content. I, mean, I don't blame them. It's pictures of the stuff that they're looking for that they want to add. It's just it boggles my mind when at this day and age, Every single person under the age of like 65 
has a smartphone in their pocket and an internet connection and can just pull up Yojo. Yeah, it may not look really great right now because we're in that process of putting that wrapper in place and you know making those code changes to make it more mobile friendly, but the content's still there. The have want list is still there. Why would you carry around a three ring binder with hundreds and hundreds of pages in it? It's beyond me. I tote my binder with the Pokemon cards around a lot more often. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to Terry Desar at Gojo.com and and you know I have no inside knowledge here, just as a as a fan and a collector myself. And I'm wondering what the most popular uh, aspects for for visits and page views are on Gojo.com. And I'm willing to bet, if not at the top, very near the top would be the Who Bit section, the Who's Helmet or Backpack is this ability to search for you know when you find that random brown backpack and you have no idea who it actually belongs to a who bit was something that it actually took even me a while to understand its value because i would just buy a complete figure or i had a complete figure i never thought about trying to pair up accessories down the road what was interesting is when yojo was first built long before my hands ever touched it, people made decisions on colors. And the thing about color is it's subjective to every person. What is green to Mark is going to be a tan to Joe, or a a tan to me, or a green. It just depends on your eyes and what colors you can see, let alone some of our users who are colorblind. Yeah, and so with the Hubit section, it's a little bit difficult because one thing I will admit that is a mistake on Yojo, and we make mistakes, we're humans. There's one thing that I corrected. Does anybody in the group remember Payload from 1993 in Star Brigade? It was just a barbecue figure painted in blue or green, or black, right? It was black molded plastic with some blue or green highlights, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, not everybody can afford a Defiant Complex or a Crusader shuttle. Sure, but everybody can afford it at that time, like a $7 figure when they were mint on card. But one thing about Payload was one of the original creators adamantly believed that the black and blue Payload version, I don't know, was version 4, came on a pink 1993 card. And we kept that on the website for probably the better part of a decade. And I had a conversation with a collector who said that he had gone to every single toy show that he could get his hands on, every G.I. Joe convention. He had looked high and low and had never found a single card sample of that figure existing on a pink card from 1993. Lots of them on the vertical logo so the horizontal logo 1994 card the white figure with the blue details on it and it was just a a color variant it took a lot of discussion there was about 12 people in that discussion before we made the determination that this figure needed to come off the website it did not belong in 1993 it did not exist on that pink card as far as we knew that we could find you know, it could have been a factory error or some, you know, weirdo thing or a reseal or, you know, who knows what. But from what we could tell, it had not 
ever had a retail release. And so those kinds of decisions are some of the most agonizing aspects about Yojo. And when it comes to Hubit, you know, calling all accessories black because they are a very, very, very dark shade of gray, like every single 1982 accessory. They're not black. They're gray. They're very dark, dark gray, you know, asphalt, you know, gunmetal gray color. And that's something that we see a lot in forums that gets a lot of criticism is, you know, Yojo's wrong. Yojo calls that black. You know, that accessory isn't black. Well, this was, you know, Yojo was created at a time when the community wasn't as particular about nomenclature and taxonomy as they are today. Um, Star Wars collectors had a good decade on us when it came to things like that. They were you know, far more particular and detail-oriented about you know, like a 12-back figure. You know, to this day, I scratch my head when somebody says, uh, what, you know, what's a 34-back you know, Cobra Commander you know, 1984 go for? Like, what's a 34-back? Oh, that's the number of portraits on the back of the card. That, that what a weird way of classifying that. That was something that, that got carried over from from Star Wars. Is as Star Wars collectors moved into the GI Joe hobby, they really changed the way that nomenclature and taxonomy is handled with the website. And that's something that you know we're focusing on changing as well. We need to keep up with the times, and we need to make sure that you know the Hubit, which will be redesigned and will be part of the re relational database. It's actually one of the last pieces of the website that is based on that archaic SHTML, but it works so well, and unfortunately, it, it would require so many hours, labor hours, to update it to today's standards that it, it simply it would be better to put that time towards programming versus updating the who bit it only goes to 2003 it never got 04 added to it or anything like that and so if you're only a vintage collector and you're doing your 82 through 94 figures the who bit's great it's got every accessory in it the downside is we call accessories black we call accessories green when they're more of a tan color and those are things that we have to go back and take a look at and go, you know, it's a website built entirely upon somebody's memory of a toy from when they were a child. So we're trying to use a childhood memory to build a forever database that will, you know, forever be the gold standard for collecting. And that's just not acceptable. You know, we can't rely on faulty memories. Like 1994 figure being on a 1993 card, it just didn't happen. Better men than us have been driven crazy by such pursuits. Again, I would like to thank my partner and cohort, Phil Donnelly, who is a robot, as well as uh, not Picard, Patrick Stewart, who is an absolute machine when it comes to tracking these variations and all of this information. They, they are relentless. They have more energy in this than I, I possibly ever could. And they will work 
as a team with other collectors, with other people in the community, other learned individuals, they will work with them until they come to a conclusion. And it may take us years before we finally decide to take something off or add something on the site or move it to a different location. Because again, you're working off of a combination of your memories as a young person combined with what we can find out in the wild in sealed package samples. And then, well, I better buy that sealed package sample and rip it open and see if it verifies my theory or not when it comes to some art or component within you know the, the toy line. Admit it, that's the part of the job you love. I've opened more sealed toys than anybody would ever want to admit. It would... <laughs> it would make some people scream. Is there one in particular that sticks out that maybe you paused a second before you tore that bubble off? They were UKG graded samples of action force figures using GI Joe tooling. And they were all like 85s and above from the same seller. And I'm like, this is a lot of money right here. I'm about ready to take a hammer too and crack that acrylic open and slide that figure out and uh but what we do do it yep that's that's what that's what you do and uh you know we, we buy vehicles like there are variations in vehicles that while are not documented yet are, are in that process for example european gi joe vehicles often have very different shades of color from their American counterparts. And this is where I want to give a shout out to Joe Declassified because their work on international variants is academic and phenomenal. Uh, I recently purchased a Greek 1992 for them, G.I. Joe Battle Wagon. And the shades of blue are much more electric. The shades of, of olive drab green are much brighter green. All of the parts on that vehicle are much brighter in color. And it's not just because it was new from a sealed package, because I can put it right next to another one that came from a sealed package as well that was sold you know, domestically in the United States. There were just total color differences in almost every single European you know, manufactured G.I. Joe vehicle. You're not going to find a European G.I. Joe vehicle that is the same shade of green or blue as in the North American version. It just, just is. And that's something that you know, we will work on getting put on the site here in the near future with some photographic samples. But that was kind of shocking to me. I thought, a G.I. Joe toy was a G.I. Joe toy was a G.I. Joe toy. You know, they were all made same Pantone colors. They were standardization. And it turns out there, there kind of wasn't. No, at least. No. I mean, they were making toys for kids. Why would they care about stuff like that back then? Exactly. Yeah, I, don't, I, I, you know, I don't say that as a joke either. I'm, I'm serious. Why would they care? You're 100% correct. That actually is something that it took me a while to really get a, a mental grasp on. Toys are commodities. They're a commodity no different than 
mouthwash from Procter and Gamble, or as we're going through right now with COVID-19 virus, Charmin toilet paper, they are consumer products. You buy them, the child plays with them, they end up at a Goodwill or in the trash. That's the fate of nearly every toy in the world. That's just how they are. They're commodities. What, what's funny, and... you, mentioned, you mentioned collectible toys and Charmin toilet paper, both of which Joe Colton is hoarding in her garage. You're an ass. <laughs> None of my business, probably both are good investments. You never know. <laughs> I was thinking that, that Crystal Ball skipped uh, one of those steps. He just didn't sell and went right into the trash. So. Oh, Oh, Brian Kaufman was going to write us a letter. Still available on on Walmart shelves, I'm told. But <laughs> that is the one GI Joe figure that I remember clear as a day being able to purchase new in 1992, right after Christmas. <laughs> you could still find because they had them in the back room at Toys R Us. They had pulled them off the shelves, threw them in a bin. And today they had bins back then. They just had a box in the back. And 1992 was such a successful year for the G.I. Joe brand that they ran out of product right around Christmas time. And so all they had left were crystal balls to put on pegs. And I remember laughing, buying a 1987 figure in tail end of 1992. I just I vividly remember going through the uh, pegs and flipping past trying to find anybody but Crystal Ball. Like, please, there's got to be somebody back. I mean, as a kid, I got money burning a hole in my pocket. I want to give you my money. But, I, man, they would be 9, 10, 11 deep on the peg. There was no escaping the terrifying rain of Crystal Ball. <laughs> I wanted a Techno Viper more than anything in the world and i could not find one but i could find a crystal ball anywhere at that time it took a while i finally found one it was the only one i ever found but because that was a really good sales year for the gi joe brand but that crystal ball just did not go anywhere running off what you were talking about about how many different variations and, and different products that you guys have bashed open for the greater good I'm sure there are fans wondering, you know, what happens to all that stuff? Is there a kind of yojo.com archive where you keep stuff for maybe later use? Or does it get turned around and resold to help, you know, make back some of the purchase price on the items you have to acquire? For the most part, no. It ends up just becoming part of our collection. I have, at this point, about three 1982 through 1994 G.I. Joe collections. The difference is quality. We focus on, at this point, especially now that we have better cameras, better photography work. Philip does some amazing photos these days, along with you know being able to use Photoshop, or maybe we, we have some trade secrets that we've learned from different employees that worked at Hasbro of what formulations of paint that we can use to replace factory paint. And so the idea is not to present a figure or an item as you would find in the wild. We try to present this is as ideal as possible. You know, maybe I might have to touch up some things in Photoshop, remove, you know, some discoloration 
do some things like that because you may run across that absolutely you know bleach white 1984 storm shadow and you may not believe it you know maybe you thought they were all sort of a bone white color why is this one so bleach white and you take a look at yojo and you're like oh wow they have one that's perfectly bleach white the carded figure matches and that's by doing lots of color studies and lots of color comparisons and then finding out that Hasbro had their own color Bible in the 1980s for what they would call a particular color. And then that color had a cross-reference to a Pantone color. And then trying to match that Pantone color to Adobe Photoshop and having a high-end monitor that has like a 99% RGB color gamut match so that you know the color that you see on your screen is as close to the actual product as it will be in real life. There's lots of technology involved. There's lots of toy samples involved. And there's lots of bugging these guys who just want to be left alone in their retirement you know, and hassling them about stuff that they don't remember from 25 years ago. <laughs> I, I think Kirk Bazigian is probably the, the exception of that. That dude's probably happy to know that there's an extra level of code in there to transpose colors across medium. That probably makes him happy. I've learned more from Kirk than I have from working for 15 years at Yojo. And I think I have spoken to Kirk to probably no more than maybe four hours in my life. That man is a wealth of information. He bleeds G.I. Joe. He truly believes down to his core. It's, you know, one of the great American products of, of the second half of the 20th century. And I agree. It was the right thing at the right time with the right people. And to have him being you know, on the helm on that was pretty, was pretty impressive. He helped me restore my uh, 1992 uh, G.I. Joe arcade because he had one in a garage and he had the instruction manual. And I wanted to get a copy of that instruction manual to make sure that the one I was getting was configured correctly by the shop that was put in together for me. Nice. So that guy knows everything. It was just one of the coolest memories from, and I didn't get to go to very many Joe cons, uh, just never quite worked out. But the last one I went to uh, as a fan after I had left Hasbro, I asked a question during his panel and Kirk called me by name and said, that's a really good question, Mark. And it was, you know, as geek out a moment as I've ever had uh, in the fandom to have the guy who, who, you know, one of the guys on the Mount Rushmore of modern Joe to call me by name. That was a, that was a big moment for me. And I got to imagine stuff like that has happened to you plenty of times over the years. Oh, absolutely. The fact that I can send an instant message through Facebook to Kirk and say, you know, just out of curiosity, what, three and three quarter inch figure was the best selling figure in the history of the brand. And he has that information and he will give it to us. And that's stuff that we greedily hold on to because that's information that helps us build the site better. It helps us look at our buy sell trade system and, you know, make decisions better. You know, these are things that the public doesn't really need to know. You know, do you really need to know what is the best-selling vehicle of all time yes. in G.I. Joe? Yes, we do. 
If you, sure. If you do, it's the devil fish. Yeah, we knew Thought that. So. We knew that. He told us. He told us that in a con panel. It, yeah, good. exactly. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. But it's the perfect birthday gift. It, it you know for a child's birthday party. It was the right size. It held you know what, three figures. You know the devil fish had so many things working for it as a toy. Plus, it came from 1986, which is the best-selling toy uh, year in GI Joe's history. Just it worked out really well, and to get that information from Kirk is really cool. Well, it's funny because it flies in the face of what's considered a toy rule: is that boats don't sell, and that's one of the reasons you don't see many Transformers that turn into boats. And similarly, you know, with Joe, with the uh, waterborne equipment, the idea was if it's big at all, it's too big to go in the bathtub. And how many kids actually have access to swimming pools? So it's hysterical on some level that, you know, there's this toy law that boats don't sell. And yet there's eight billion devil fish out there in people's collections or Goodwill stores. And the funny thing is one of the biggest boats in the G.I. Joe line is considered the centerpiece of the entire brand with the flag. And one of the second largest boats has wheels on it so a kid could push it around on the carpet. You know, the whole idea that female action figures don't sell, that boats don't sell, that ethnic figures don't sell, you know, ethnic characters those types of things, they're wrong. And G.I. Joe has proven that time and time and time again, that the the norms, the rules in the industry, they're biased misconceptions. And G.I. Joe's proven that. I worked with a, a former Hasbro sales guy, John Shobe, uh, who was selling Joe in 85 and 86 and 87, I think. I worked with him at McFarland Toys, and he found out I was a Joe fan. And he was as Texas as Texas gets. And I asked him about, or I told him about the flag. The, the flag was the big gift I got from my wife for my first Father's Day. The, you know, the my white whale that I'd never had in my Joe collection. And mm -hmm. I finally got it set up, took a picture of it, found out it's three feet wide. I think everybody knows it's seven feet long. It's three feet wide, you know, at its, at its widest length. It's a beast. So I took the picture in and showed it to John the next Monday. And in his best Texan, he was like, Wham, they didn't believe we could sell that thing. And let me tell you, we called it the coffee table. <laughs> Guy Cassidy, he had first been hired right as they were completing manufacturing on the flag. And the flag was made here in the United States at the Hasbro factory in Rhode Island. You know, it is a completely American made toy. And one of the coolest stories is him saying that they put the whole thing together and he's six feet long and 200 pounds and he laid down on it and it didn't give way. That's how sturdy of a toy it was. That was always a neat thing to think about that. It's not just the centerpiece, but the thing is robust. It is a beast. A kid down the road who had it, who we didn't like, but... Uh -huh. It made him more popular. <laughs> he had the flag, right? And we offered him ridiculous deals for the Keel Hall figure, right? And we're talking like 10 or 12 for one, you know, because there's no other way to get that guy back then. You, you would go, you know, there were 
people who never even had seen that figure live because right. so few people owned that flag. Man, we tried hard to get that keel haul from him. If I remembered his name, he could he could get in the Tim Roberts line, I guess, and uh, <laughs> and come after me someday. But as far as I know, nobody ever uh, ever got uh, Admiral Keelhaul out of that kid's hands. Well, we we've established that Young Webb was kind of a shifty kid. I'm surprised you didn't steal it from him. You know, I it's kind of it's or like clothesline him and take it, right? Or a flying uh, a flying knee. Uh, those are those are going around. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I German always, suplex. I, right? I always had a thing for for uh, the driver figures. I think it just kind of it validated your collection kind of, you know, all the way back to Steeler being one of my favorites ever and certainly from that first year because if you had Steeler, you knew you had a tank at home. And maybe you couldn't take the tank to school, but you could bring the Steeler figure with you. So I, I just always thought the vehicle drivers that came with the high-end stuff as special kind of panache to him like and the, i'm just going through the years the avac after that and then uh you know payload and hardtop and admiral keelhaul i just even when i see those guys you know loose you know just a an original keelhaul knocking around you see it in an auction for you know 12 15 bucks and you're like man that's a keelhaul that's a ridiculous deal no matter the condition, no matter you know how complete it may or may not be, I still think those high-end vehicle drivers are all, will always have a, a certain instinctive value to them. I see them right now, and I want to bid on them, right? Because I'm like, oh, <laughs> I could army build a keel haul. That'd be something. You could get them through the mail-away offers for a couple of years afterwards, so he wasn't that exclusive when it was all said and done. There were a lot of them out there. I must have just missed out on that because as a kid, I would have been all over that. It was weird growing up in the middle of, of ben, you know, Oregon and Bend in a small town without a Toys R Us. There were a lot of things I missed. I didn't know Night Force existed until like a decade later because if you didn't have a Toys R Us, they didn't advertise all that stuff. So there were no message boards. There weren't fan newsletters at the time. You could really miss a lot depending on where you were collecting from geographically. There were only a handful of fans that were young adults at that time who were really into G.I. Joe, uh, Thomas Wheeler being really the one. And, yeah, you could easily miss a retailer exclusive. Yeah, I remember the first time I found out that there, there was a Hiss versus Mud Fighter 2-pack. That was an exclusive you know, talk about the weirdest exclusive combination there is. A strange propellered airplane with way too many bombs on it and a weird pale blue Cobra Hiss as an exclusive or hit and run with a parachute pack. The number of exclusives that were released each year and continued to get larger and larger until you had entire sub-teams like Night Force it's the only toy line like that. I think Transformers comes close, but I can't think of anything where there was an entire line of nothing but classic figures and vehicles re-released just for one retailer. Poor yeah, young and Weber. that's living in the vintage. deepest, darkest places of the woods, so he wouldn't get sunburned, missing out on everything. That's what I'm talking about. So Terry, we've spent a lot of time talking about. Yojo's greatest hits 
what would Yojo's greatest misses be? What almost came to fruition on the site that ultimately you decided just wasn't going to work? That's a tough one to answer. With a website like this, you know, everything has to be a strategic decision because at the end of the day, it needs to sell advertising space because we don't really have a very vibrant subscription model that isn't going to pay for the bills. We don't have a lot of advertisers. So we've had a partner, you know, and that's all well beyond anything I deal with at this point. You know, I'm completely out of that game. My job is to just keep the site running, work with the team at the new parent company to fix some issues that we're having. Uh, we've had some technical issues that have prevented updates. That's a big miss right now is not being able to add new content to the site until we get some things fixed. And when you move a website that is so uniquely coded and all kinds of little hacks and workarounds to make it work exactly the way you want it to work, and then you move it from one server to another server, and that server has you know hundreds of other websites on it, it breaks everything. And then you're dealing with a very large corporation, uh, which Vertical Scope is, that has rules and policies that you are not authorized for. I do not have a non-disclosure agreement yet for access to file transfer protocol because they have an IT policy. I, working in IT, totally understand what they're doing, why they have these rules for information security. You have all kinds of personal information stored you know, in your forms account, in your collection management account. And if there were a hack and all that information got leaked, which there was by the previous ownership, which had not been discovered by their IT department, you know, you end up with you know information missing and now you become a liability. And in this day and age, every single website is a threat to your personal identity. Anything you see or do on the web can come back to haunt you later. And so that's kind of where we're at right now is resolving those issues, making sure that we're secure. I mean, if you take a look at like a URL for GI Joe, you'll know uh, for Yojo, you'll notice that everything is secure uh, hypertext transfer protocol or HTTPS. The site itself is is encrypted. Your information, your connection, you know, stuff, your IP address. Everything is encrypted and hidden from a third party that may otherwise be able to see that. And so we have to take information security very seriously when it comes to this. It's a website about toys, but you're still putting information into it. And you know we have to treat that with a certain level of both mandated as well as personal responsibility. As for some misses, Boy, I really would like to rebuild the Whobit 10 years ago. I originally wanted to delete the thing. I just wanted to get rid of it. It didn't make any sense to me. It took a lot of cajoling from three or four people that work on the site explained to me how important the Whobit actually is to the collecting community. Oh, my God. To me, yes. I look at it, well, if I look at, you know, a gun that belonged to 
oh, I don't know, uh, airtight. That's obviously airtight. Vacuum cleaner or whatever the heck that thing's supposed to be. We call it a sniffer, as I look on the, on the page. That's obvious what that is. That's not going to be obvious to a new collector or to a new fan. And that's something that we have to take into account is the community changes, the community loses people, the community adds people. Yep. And we have to be able to serve everyone at all levels at all times. The goal is as many GHO collectors as possible. I would love to see instead of 12,000 know, members, 120,000 members. Who knows in the years to come? The cool thing about GI Joe, and I say this constantly, this is sort of my motto, is it can be anything you want it to be. Do you want it to be a military line? It can be a military line. Do you want it to be a ninja action-adventure brand? It can be an action-adventure brand. If you want it to be science fiction, it can be science fiction. Anything fits under the G.I. Joe umbrella if you put the marketing together correctly, if you just showcase it the right way. G.I. Joe can be anything. And that's something that we're seeing again right now with the release of the six-inch scale figures. You know, they'll be out later this year. And then movie figures and who knows what else we're going to see in the coming months. G.I. Joe can be anything to anyone. You brushed up against the hot topic in, in the Joe community right now is the G.I. Joe classified series and the foray into the into the six-inch realm of collecting. I, I think it probably goes without saying, but it's worth saying. I assume that's something we'll see represented on yojo.com. Oh, of course. We have everything from 1964 to G.I. Joe Extreme to Sergeant Savage. There's some areas where I'd like to work more on, but it's going to be something that's going to require more people. I want to work on that 12-inch line from the 90s and the early 2000s. And just putting together the photos and just a list of how many pieces were created and for what retailers, and let alone production numbers, it's, it's mind-boggling. The G.I. Joe as a brand, when you back away from the real American hero characters and you look at how big has G.I. Joe been in the last 35 years, it's been massive, absolutely monumental. Things like diorama pieces to a deck gun off of a World War II destroyer. You know, there's so many different unique pieces that fit into the into the brand that it's we, we get it all. You know, we're we're committed to every single piece, every single variant, every accessory, and every package variant. That's that's the whole goal. Yojo is to be your one and only needed place to get all of your information from the GI Joe brand. As somebody who's seen it all and opened it all, and as a fan yourself, what's your opinion of the new six-inch line? I'm not a real big fan of six-inch figures because one of the things to me that makes G.I. Joe so unique is that we can have vehicles. And if you remember back to Star Wars just no more than maybe three or four years ago, there was a one-twelfth scale TIE fighter sold for their six-inch line. And people were literally making end tables for their, you know, their man caves 
and putting glass tabletops on those things because they were so huge. How do you do a tank for a six-inch figure? How do you fit three figures into that tank? You don't. It's not possible. So you just don't do vehicles. If you do, they're going to be very small. They're going to be flight pods or they're going to be, you know, Ram motorcycles. They're going to be very small accessories more than they are vehicles. The 80s and 90s G.I. Joe line is better viewed as a action vehicle line than an action figure line. And sure, there's changes and trends. The Star Wars line had numerous vehicles back in 2005. By 2015, how many vehicles are available for the Star Wars line right now that are in the four-inch scale when it's not a movie year? Like none, you know, maybe a couple. And if they are, they're extremely expensive or they're retailer exclusive. And it's just like right now, you know, it's $100 for Luke Skywalker's X-Wing. 100 plus, like I think it's like 100 and change, 110 for a toy that in 1977 was $14. There's a huge disparity. You throw in a scale change and you, you've now made it impossible, at least from my perspective, from where I sit. I could be wrong, but... See, I, what, I, I, what, I, what I, I hear you saying, not. Terry, is that uh, we need to be making tanks that seat three six-inch figures with glass tabletops. Yes. That's what I'm hearing here. That's that's what I'm Me picking too. up for this conversation. <laughs> or make them large enough so then fast enough so that you can take them to work every day by sitting on them. You know, that's about it. Ooh, no, no. I see. just I just assumed that there would be vehicles because they've designed in this amazing ab crunch to be able to put the figure into the vehicle. I assume that that was the reasoning for this gigantic cut right across the torso. Oh, my God. He's going on the ab cut again. Here we go. You know, I'm sorry. I'm I'm with him. A uh, center cut. Right? And Welcome home. Look, Terry, is, Terry, neither, of, neither Joe nor myself are saying that either of you are wrong. But, my God, we're just, we're, we're on autopilot with this already. He's, he's trying to find ways to work it in to make us go crazy. That's all. You know, Don't you know how some people, some people get up on their soapbox? I think that's, <laughs> that's a waste of time, man. I am cut across the chest. Dude, I am camped out on my soapbox. <laughs> so he's got a half a soapbox strapped to each shoe. If you don't like it, you better learn to love it. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll die. make it a wheelchair accessible platform because I'm right there with you. It is it doesn't make sense to me why you would do that. When I take a look at other toy lines that are the four inch size, like Marauder has done with his line, especially his World War II line, which as a historian, they're just phenomenal. And there's no cut right in the middle of the chest that breaks up everything that it doesn't work. It just doesn't work for me. When you have it based on like an earlier 80s design where the rotation is at the waist, that makes the most sense. It allows the figure to bend forward at the waist at multiple points to fit into a vehicle. When it's a mid-chest cut, the figure just flops forward. 
and then it, the stand falls forward and then it knocks over the rest of your figures and you come into your office in the morning and there's your display case and all your figures are knocked over because that stupid chest cut on Snake Eyes knocked over eight, 12 figures. Making Bitter. him the most lethal figure in the line. Absolutely. What's interesting to me, I've had some information passed my way from a former Hasbro employee. When we take a look at the software that is used to create and construct a figure, and we look at the cost of producing a six-inch version versus a four-inch version, for some, for me anyway, completely illogical reason, six-inch scale is more popular. I think it's because it gives people a smaller line to collect and a fresh place to start. Trying to collect Star Wars from scratch is an experiment in insanity. You're not going to get all the variations. You're not going to find all the products available from just a certain year. Like in 2008, how many comic book packs were produced? In G.I. Joe, how many comic book packs were produced with two and three figures in them? It's a massive line. In a six-inch scale, you can start over. You can say, hey, I'm going to start collecting these and start from scratch. And it's really easy. You start from the beginning and you don't have to buy as many products. And these lines are extremely financially successful because manufacturing costs are almost identical. The shipping costs are identical. The difference is it's a $12 figure or it can be a $25 figure. It didn't cost you anything extra to make it a $25 figure. And so there's a lot of financial incentive, I think, for Hasbro to focus on a six-inch scale. It makes sense. It makes sense to me from a business perspective anyway to do a six-inch G.I. Joe at least as a trial run because unlike you know Marvel Legends or unlike Star Wars, there's no Disney involved in this. G.I. Joe is a wholly owned Hasbro product with profit margins that I sure are astronomical in comparison. You could sell a third as many and probably do twice as well. I, I don't know. I just assume. But it was long a frustration of mine working there was why can't we get more oomph behind gi joe just given how profitable it is by comparison I, I never understood the reticence to put more marketing dollars and the item count behind the gi joe line it, it never made sense to me take a look at the transformers brand and how huge it is right now how successful it is right now and how much of that money goes to different individuals who have contracts with Hasbro for creative licensing and all these other aspects. There's money that gets lost in every sale of a Transformer or a Marvel figure or a Star Wars figure. That doesn't happen with G.I. Joe. And so, again, I'm, I'm right there behind you. Why is there not a push to make this Hasbro's number one flagship product. It has saved the company on 
three specific times from bankruptcy, from losing the company. G.I. Joe has saved Hasbro time and time again. And I just, I never got it. Like, if what are Mattel's two most important brands? Hot Wheels and Barbie. And Hot they Wheels all- and Barbie, right. Would they ever turn their backs on Hot Wheels or Barbie? I mean, I understand brands need to be sunsetted and brought back and refreshed and all that, but I never, ever understood why why Joe would ever get treated like the redheaded stepchild inside those walls. Seeing G.I. Joe at retail in 2016 relegated to the collectible toy corner at Toys R Us next to other various piles of junk. I I really just what they are. They're just various different toys. They're not junk junk, but they're just they're stuff. You know, they're collectibles that somebody's gonna put on their desk at work. And to see a sky striker and a his tank sitting next to all that stuff was heartbreaking. You know, and it really was to me, it was very upsetting, you know, and seeing, and there's some things that did make a lot of sense with the 50th anniversary line, like the Cobra Wolf. I'm not sure how many people really would recall what that is, but, you know, it's a snow vehicle for the G.I. Joe brand. It was kept 100% intact and identical to its 1987 release. You go on eBay and you buy a mint condition Cobra Wolf. How much is that going to cost you? At that time, about $20. The set was, what, maybe $40? Sounds about right. Probably $40, $45. Yeah, something like that. Let me go back here. Cobra Wolf, 50th anniversary. Boy, Yojo has lots of great information. Oh, my, it was $39.99. And uh, it came with a repaint of the ghost hawk with a really cool gray and white arctic camouflage scheme not one new paint app nothing was put on the cover wolf to make it new the 1991 mail away version is more interesting than what was released in 2014. that's sad and it's sad that there you know those were the decisions that were made by people probably earning much more and having much more sway with inside the company than you, Mark, than you did at your time with the brand. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I talk about low man on the totem pole. Yeah, I'm, I'm positive. There's no way on earth you would have released a Cobra Wolf, let alone a Cobra Wolf in the exact same colors, in the exact same everything as its original 1987 counterpart. When I was on the brand, we had we were crippled by the item count we were given, you know, three or four new items in a year, and even a touch of paint classified it as new. But an item like that, where if the ghost talk has new paint on it, then that whole item is brand new. So maybe you couldn't get the tooling to make a physical change to it or to update the figures more than they did, but you certainly could have changed up the deco or, you know, done something to the other vehicle. It wouldn't have cost another piece of item count. That whole item is considered new. And that's where I tried to, you know, spread the mayonnaise as thin as I could, basically. And if I had a new two-pack, 
then I tried to get as much in there as I could. And for the items that I couldn't release as new, we tried to find stuff that there were reasons to re-release, like a Zombie Viper 2-pack, because no one got enough Zombie Vipers, or Snake Eyes, you know, what I think is the best modern Snake Eyes, yep. together with that, uh, with the Storm Shadow from Renegades that a lot of people had trouble finding. So we didn't get a lot to work with, but... Man, we tried to stretch it and, and and make the best decisions we could to put out a you know a compelling line with not a lot of groceries. And you take a look at 2014, and you only had two retail vehicle sets, four vehicles in total. Two of them are exact reproductions from their original counterparts from 1985 and 1987. The Cobra Night Landing, the Night Raft, as it was called and the Cobra Wolf. And that's a great big question mark. If they're new items, if you have the budget, the ability, why are they re-releases? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and it doesn't cost anything to cast them in a different color of plastic, right? Even if you don't have the decalops to make it fantastic or you know, you can't print out a decal sheet big enough to make it unique, it doesn't cost anything to change the color a little bit. That's just lazy brand management. And that was something I learned from one of, I think it was during um, Hascon, during the G.I. Joe presentation, the fact that the stiletto was used as the example. You could only cast it in one color, yet you need to give it enough depth and enough things to make it look like it has more shading and coloring than it actually does. And that's where the detail comes in. And that's what made G.I. Joe such a detailed line. It was more like a model kit than it was, you know, a, a toy at that time period. And if you take a look at a Stellar Stiletto or a re-release with the uh, G.I. Joe Starfighter, and you see that the way that the light casts down on that, all these different lines and ridges and techno, you know, little greebles that are all over the toy, it really brings it to life and it makes it unique. And... A color palette swap makes it a whole new toy. And we, we saw it with, you know, like we said, with Night Force. We saw it with Star Brigade. Uh, the idea to bring Space Joes out early to compete against Star Wars was a great marketing tactic, I think, by the G.I. Joe brand to move something like the Armorbot from being the centerpiece of the military brand, which was G.I. Joe's uh, Battle Corps, and move it over into Star Brigade, and then to take as many space figures as you can, get them into Star Brigade, get them onto shelves now, and then bring other newer products behind it, like Armor Tech, which unfortunately didn't work out as well as anticipated, and then all the different canceled items in 1995. The G.I. Joe brand had some real creativity behind it, and you know, the ability to take a toy from four years ago, which seemed, as a kid to me, seeing a Duke in 1988 in Tiger Force, it's only four years since he, not three years since he was available in 1985. To me, as a kid, that was like a whole other world. You know, I had never seen, it, it was like, oh, finally, I get a chance to buy this character again. It's just, it was very interesting to see how, in the 50th anniversary, the line was treated. Looking at the Vamp Mark II, you know, we got the Vamp. And 
geez, how many different versions of the Vamp are there? My goodness, you know, just the original vehicle. There's just so many interesting things that occurred during those those final years, and then to see it change, you know, we have a change in scale. We have how many figures are in the first assortment now? Six, five, five in the the exclusive. Five in the exclusive, which is, I have a feeling one of the five is just going to be Snake Eyes minus the uh, accessories and the board. Oh, yeah. So you're going to end up with just a handful of figures. And there's some other interesting, more cultural things. G.I. Joe has always been interesting. It has been a sponge of pop culture. It has been a sponge of American politics. And it has been a sponge of children's entertainment. I'm looking above me right now, and on my shelf is the 1992 Cobra Toxolab. Neon in colors, popular at the time. And what I'm really looking at is I'm looking at a G.I. Joe chemical weapons factory. Yep. You know, talk about one of the craziest ideas that I don't think would float today. You know, I'd like to make a chemical weapons plant. Is that okay with you guys? There's no way that's going to happen in a meeting. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a quiet boardroom, I can tell you that. <laughs> and what we also learned was that you don't make a crossword puzzle and toss it at what's on Joe Mind because they will not catch it. <laughs> Just don't do it. I, don't do uh, it. Still a big fan of the hintless crossword puzzle. <laughs> I thought it was fun it you know brought hasbro and the community together it, it gave us something to talk about every week it we, was we, we just you know, didn't talk about idea and <laughs> we we openly I, tossed I, it to the side it was it was terrible because he he looked right at us in that panel mark weber looked right at us it's like i was kind of hoping you guys would talk about it on your show oh Man. I had to fight. I had to fight so hard to get that thing done. That thing got shot down twice, uh, hard. And the alternative was nothing. Like nobody else was doing any kind of marketing for it at all, and there was no budget at all. And so it had to be pretty. It's kind of ballsy to make that third pitch. Like things get pitched twice, but hardly anything that's been shot down twice. You know, comes back for a third time, and I think that was it was just surprising enough that they went okay, fine. I think the only thing that's ever been pitched three times, and the third time was successful, was the original 1981, well, 81 and 82 GI Joe line. So I'm an excellent company. You're an excellent company. And you've come full circle because now you're on what's on Joe Mind and not just trying to get us to do crossword puzzles. And I'm an even more excellent company. Uh, I want to flip this for a second. I'd like to ask the panel, what would you like to see from Yojo? What is something, a feature, an item, something that you want to see us do at Yojo.com? You answered my top of my wish list a little bit ago when you said that there was a skin that would make the, the site uh, a better read on portable devices. Yeah, there's definitely you know, those technical changes, technical Cause, improvements. Because probably two, sure. two-thirds of the time when I'm on the site, it's because I'm out shopping, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm double-checking on to something to see if it's got the right accessories or the right colored accessories, because I know my brain is slowly pushing out what guns go with what 
toy that was made almost 40 years ago. So I, I refer to yojo.com quite a bit when I'm, when I'm out hunting for, for vintage stuff. So that took care of the top of my list and probably the top couple spots on my list. Hey, Mike, were you, were you wondering if it was going to be a mobile site or, or like an app? It wouldn't have mattered to me. Just, okay. Yeah, it, yeah I, I, I was thinking an app. I was in either way. So. Okay. We're, and, and we're trying to do both. You know, that, that's kind of, that, at least for me, that's our goal. Is I'd like to have a, a collector's app where you're able to you know, use the camera on your smartphone, take photos of what you have, have a, a checklist of what you don't have, you know, make it a little more friendly, maybe have it advertising supported. There's some things that we can do that way, which there's some amazing tools that will take a website and again, like put a candy wrapper around it and turn it into a mobile app. The problem is making sure that you meet the requirements for Apple. That's where the issue really comes into play. Apple will not let you just make a copy of your website and put it in an app. It has to carry a certain percentage of the amount of data has to be stored locally on the device and be usable without an internet connection and so on and so on. And there's all these requirements that you have to abide by exclusively for Apple. If Apple's being tough, just go talk to IBM. This <laughs> boss. This yeah, boss. Pick up the phone. I'm an idea. I'm an idea guy. You know, one of the things I was looking at, and I've toyed with it, the idea of it myself is, I don't think Joe gets enough credit for the the long running comic book story, and the fact that it's you know one guy. Even if you're only looking at the the real American hero bit, and the comic archive at yojo.com is great. But I've always been kind of curious or interested in kind of a character tracker in what issues did this specific character appear and when did they meet their end if they actually did and stayed dead, which is so rare in comics. So I've always thought that would be kind of a cool thing. I don't know. I don't know how much value there is to it, but it, it has always felt like that compilation of information isn't readily available anywhere online. What's interesting about that is you bring up one of our challenges with Yojo. We try not to duplicate a resource that you are going to find on another website. For example, we're not going to do customs because we're friends with joecustoms.com. My idea behind Yojo is I want it to be the hub of the Joe community and all the other websites that are out there, all the other projects, 3D Joes, so on, they are spokes that come off of the main hub. That way we all work together, we all share resources. And there are, was, I'm not sure if it's still around, but there was a website called JMM's GI Joe Comic Guide or Comic Website, and it contained all that information, which characters passed away and which you know issues. It, would probably be very helpful for Larry had he not been told just recently, you know, pencils down on issue was 275 is our last known issue for the foreseeable future from IDW. One of the things is we try not to step on the toes of other people. Today, I would reconsider that because nobody's looking at that website and nobody's going there to get that information. 
It may not even be online. I would have to check. We can retitle it Grand Slam Takes Another Bullet.com. Yeah. You know, maybe you shouldn't wear a bright orange vest. That's what I'm saying. Or put some protection on that guy next to the cannon, right? Who's not taking a sniper shot at the guy firing the laser artillery cannon who happens to be completely exposed on the side of it? Look, Flash well, don't, Flash don't dresses the same way, and nobody shoots Flash. <laughs> I think it's kind of ironic that once the animation money started rolling in, that Cobra upgraded them all to laser rifles, and then they couldn't hit nothing. Today's culture is a little... It's a little strange how I can watch Star Wars animation and watch clones take laser bolts, blaster bolts right to the chest and drop dead right in front of me. And I'm watching, you know, a war and people die and it's horribly, there's no parachutes in Star Wars. You know, people die. It's a war. Yet, try doing that in the 80s. There is no way that cartoon would have would have made it past the censors. It never would have been syndicated. So we've been spending time with Terry Desard of Gojo.com and, and and a good you know look at the past and also a preview of the future of I think the most essential online repository of information for our beloved GI Joe brand. Anything you want to uh, close with to uh, you know either get off your chest that we haven't been able to touch on? We know that we're missing some figures. We know that we need to put 2017, 2018 up. We're working on it. We have photos. You would not believe the number of quality photos that are waiting to go online. Once we resolve some technical issues with our parent company, we'll be doing those updates. So in the very near future, you can expect a massive, massive update of content. And then from there, you know, we're going to be keeping pace with the classics line and the, the new movie line and everything else that comes out. So the Yojo you love is the same as it has always been and it always will be. And you know, we're gonna continue to we're gonna continue to move on and to stay current. And if you wanna submit something. If you have an idea, if you want to contact us, do so. Reach out. Let us know what you're thinking, what you want to see, what you want us to do differently. We're your website. We don't build Yojo for us. We build it for you. We build it for your collection and for your hobby. And making you happy makes us happy. So that's the best way I can leave it. We really appreciate it, Terry. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. And we also want to thank our listeners for uh, joining us and spending some of their time with us here as we roll on with the virtual con for What's on Joe Mind. For Mike Irizarry and Joe Colton, I'm Mark Weber. Be safe, be kind, and we will talk to you soon right here on What's on Joe Mind. Thanks again for tuning in to day one of the What's on Joe Mind virtual Joe Con. Special thanks to our guest, Terry Desard. Be sure to visit our fundraising page at donate.wck.org slash what's on Joe Mind. And if you can spare it, give a few dollars to World Central Kitchen. You can find out more about them on the site. Thanks again for your support and love during this historically tough time. Be sure to tune in tomorrow when our special guest panelists will be Joe Slepsky of the Joe on Joe podcast and Joe Holp of the File Card podcast. See you tomorrow. 
young teacher, the subject of school girl fantasy. She wants him so badly, knows what she wants to be. Inside her, there's longing. This girl's an open page. Bookmark her, she's so close now. This girl is half his age. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a great night. Stay Thank safe, guys. And gals. <laughs> Good save, Terry. <laughs> <laughs>